The Story of Gumbutter. Episode 10 Coming Clean. Look, sorry if you spent the last nine episodes wondering if I'd been pulling your leg the whole time. After all, I had a whole draft of part nine in which I'd claimed to have heard Gumbatter's story in the place of honour by the wood stove, throat warm with airag, mouth salty with yak jerky while horses shivered snow from their flanks outside and all that jazz. In the end, I decided to go with the story about filming Gumbatter for a documentary on the grounds that at least you'd be able to fact check that, if you were sufficiently bothered. It's hard to know whether you're happy just to settle back and be spun a yarn, or if you're really exercised by this story's veracity. In part one, I made clear that the story of Gambatar is a fictionalised version of a true story. Some bits are made up, others are true. Now, I know which bits are true and which I've made up. I'm a journalist, that's my job. Your challenge, I suppose, is to sort out the truth from the lies, like a, a panel show game. I could just honk a horn whenever I'm about to tell a porky, or ting a bell when what I'm about to say is well-sourced enough to have got past the fact-checking team of the New York Times. But even this would have been hard to actually implement. How can I know which bits you care about when it comes to fact or fiction? To be honest, there are a few bits where even I'm a bit hazy whether they really happened or I've just filled in some gaps. In any case, objective reality is one thing, our perception of it another. Ask ten people from the same town to draw a map from the library to the train station, not only will you get ten different maps, some will be mutually unintelligible. Then there are the non-binary problems. How much detail should I go into? How hard should I try to prove what I'm claiming is true? We could have a whole other suite of sound effects to indicate the degree to which I'm certain about certain facts. How about an elephant's trumpet for a cast-iron fact? A pub cheering a waiter who's just dropped a plate for a single-source assertion. A sarcastic, slow handclap for something I'm pretty sure I overheard some bloke telling someone else over the phone on a crowded train. To adopt a more nautical metaphor, appropriate for the story of Gambatar, which bits are the jetsam deliberately cast overboard by a person making a conscious decision? Which bits are the flotsam? Remnants of past accidents, unaccountable, untraceable. But behind all this lies the biggest question. Does it matter if this part or that part or the entire story is true or false? Or to be even more precise, why does this particular point matter to you right now? Do you see my dilemma here? Take the lake shanty. You can hear it's a bit ragged. Maybe you picked up a fire crackling in the background. Even if you don't speak Mongolian, and if you did, you probably wouldn't be asking any of these questions, you must admit the lyrics sound pretty authentic. All fakeable, of course. But would I really go to all that trouble just to pull a prank? And what would be the point of fooling you? I mean, search the internet for a 2001 documentary called The Mongolian Navy, All at Sea, by Litmus Films, and you'll hear the self-same story, with the lake shanty right at the top. You'll see the smartly uniformed sailors singing it by a campfire by the lake. Later on in the film, you'll even see Gambatar himself and hear him telling his story, if you believe the subtitles, or speak Mongolian, that is. 
тийм гоо хаанч байхгүй. Энийг одоо энд энд орчин тул байхгүй байхгүй. Тийм гараад одоо амар гоё санагдчих байхгүй. Талаа гэж ийм сайхан байна. But even though that film was uploaded years ago, it could still be part of an elaborate sting of uncertain motivation, a bit like F for fake if you've seen that Orson Welles documentary. Or was it a documentary? Then you might also stumble across another Litmus Films film about the ukulele string harvest. Clearly a load of hogwash. So what can you conclude from that? Look, the only way I know to explain all of this to you is to tell you another story. It's the story of the tallest woman in Mongolia. It's much shorter, but I heard it from the same person who first alerted me to the existence of the Mongolian Navy, which is how I met Ganbatar. I could tell you my friend's name, and you could then search for him online, but the point I'm trying to make here is... Well, let me try to make it. This friend of mine was a photojournalist living in Beijing. He was there when, having been the world's second communist revolution to succeed in 1923, Mongolia became the world's second communist revolution to fail in 1991. Under communism, journalist visas to Mongolia were hard to come by, and once you got there, reporting was heavily supervised. My friend wanted to be the first foreign photojournalist to visit the country and report on it freely. Before he left, he tried to research his trip by trawling through back copies of Mongolia Pictorial magazine in Mongolia's embassy in Beijing. Amid the generic pictures of bumper harvests, impressive heavy machinery and bemedaled generals inspecting troops, he found one photo that amused him. It was captioned, the tallest woman in Mongolia. It showed a woman, in traditional Mongolian dress, standing on the grassland. There was a blue sky above the horizon, green grass below, and no other point of reference in the entire photo. For anyone not an expert in Mongolian grass species, she could have been anywhere between four and nine foot tall. A Mongolian journalist was interpreting and helping my friend arrange this reporting trip. Uh, my friend mentioned this photo during one of their phone calls. Ah, yes, I know that woman, said the local journalist. By now, my friend was accustomed to this kind of response. She doesn't live anywhere near where we're going. My friend said that was fine, he'd only mentioned it in passing, and it was really only the caption of the tallest woman in Mongolia that had intrigued him. Weeks later, well into his reporting trip, my friend found himself, as he had every morning so far, bouncing and jiggling across the grassland in a Soviet jeep. He'd quickly stopped bothering even asking about their destination. Within a few days, it had become clear that his diligent pre-departure research had been a total waste of time. In Mongolia, nothing was ever as you expected. But what you found instead was way more extraordinary than you could ever have imagined. The week before, they'd set off to take a photo of a horse race in which six-year-old jockeys rode 50 miles bareback. That evening, they returned with a roll of film containing photos of smartly uniformed sailors standing to attention on the deck of the only boat in Mongolia. So it was only after three hours of bouncing and jiggling when their jeep approached the first gear they'd seen for 20 miles and started to slow down that he asked his interpreter about today's destination. Oh, didn't you say you wanted to meet the tallest woman in Mongolia? His interpreter replied. By now, my friend knew better than to say anything. Instead, he reached for his camera bag, removed his notebook and wondered what today's surreal adventure would turn out to be. 
The family had of course spotted them as soon as they appeared as a speck on the horizon and were all standing in front of their gear, beaming. The welcome committee consisted of beaming Mongolian men, beaming Mongolian children and beaming Mongolian grandparents. Missing, however, was a Mongolian woman of the age of the woman in the magazine photo, beaming or not, tall or not. As my friend got out of the jeep and stretched, he wondered if the whole tallest woman thing would turn out to be another false peak on the grassland, a fork in the road leading to another randomly remarkable but unrelated story. He asked his interpreter if this really was the family of the tallest woman in Mongolia. Oh yes, he replied, this is definitely her family. But my friend wondered if he should just let events unfold, but couldn't resist stating the obvious, there's no tall woman here. Oh, she must still be inside the gear, came the confident reply. Hmm, that's possible, thought my friend, as they approached the beaming welcome committee. Arrivals by jeep turned specks on the horizon into full-sized humans faster than horseback. Inside the gear, maybe yak jerky was still being cut into strips and laid out on the best plate. Maybe home-brewed airag was still being poured into the best cups. Maybe the stove was being filled with fuel. Yes, a puff of white wood smoke suddenly appeared at the gear's chimney, the only cloud in the sapphire blue sky. By now, my friend was used to Mongolian greetings, the younger person grasping the forearms of the elder person, and they rapidly worked their way through the welcoming line. Amid the formalities, his interpreter must have mentioned the object of their mission. Everyone laughed as they raised their hands, palm down above their heads, nodded and pointed inside the gear. The children began calling out, Eeh! Eeh! which my friend by now knew was Mongolian for mother. The little wooden door that protected the gear from the elements swung open. A woman, unmistakably the same one as in the photo, crouched as she emerged outside. She, my friend, and my friend's interpreter now formed a triangle outside the gear. The rest of the family, now appraised of their guest's mission in coming all this way from across the ocean just to meet one of their family, respectfully retreated to form an audience for this momentous event. Adults and children followed every move, every syllable, as if they were breaking in a particularly dangerous skittish horse. They hadn't even drunk a drop of Eirag, but this was already one hell of a story. My friend said to his interpreter, Look, let me know when you think we've done enough of the formalities, but whenever you think the time is right, can you just confirm with her that she really is the tallest woman in Mongolia? The interpreter nodded and spoke to the woman. It seemed everyone was keen to dispense with the formalities now the nature of the visit of this foreign journalist had been revealed, as the woman's answer was brief. After weeks in Mongolia, my friend needed no interpretation. Team meant yes. My friend thought carefully about his follow-up question, then said to his interpreter, Look, again, I'll, I'll leave it up to you how delicately you want to put this, as I don't want to cause any offence. Maybe say something like, My foreign friend comes from a place with very many, very tall women. Uh, he, he says you're tall, but you're not, like, tall. The interpreter nodded and launched into a lengthy address, and from the body language, my friend deduced he was doing a good job of softening any potential blow to pride or risk of offence. 
It seemed to work. Her reply was concise rather than terse. She says she completely understands what you mean. She agrees that although she's tall, she's not like tall. Like spectators at an archery competition anticipating the next arrow, the eyes of interpreter, the eyes of the woman, and the eyes of the entire family in the audience now turned towards my friend. Let me think how best to ask this, he pondered a moment. The shyest child in the audience, forgetting her shyness, pushed to the front. Look, she seems to be taking this very well, so if you think it's okay, why not just come out with it and ask her directly if she really thinks she truly is the tallest woman in all of Mongolia? The interpreter nodded. This time, his question was much briefer. But not as brief as the woman's reply. Now, everyone's eyes were back on my friend, anticipating his reaction to the translated response. The interpreter spoke. She says, no, probably not. If you are disappointed with this story, my apologies again. I'm still not making my point. If you thought it was all just a shaggy yak story, that might be true. But it's a true shaggy yak story, in broad outline. Remember, I told it in order to illustrate the whole point of the story of Gambatar. If you'll forgive a further stretch, and at the risk of dragging you too abruptly from the magical world of Gares, Irak, and Mongolian sailors, I'd even argue it's the whole point of our entire human story. You might imagine all our recent technological advances would have narrowed the gap between fact and fiction, or enhanced our capacity to tell them apart. Instead, the internet appears to be amplifying it. Our capacity for coming up with new ideas far outstrips our capacity to change the way we think. It turns out that having all the evidence, all the facts, all the truth available at the click of a mouse hasn't made us more likely to embrace it. We turn out to be even more reluctant to even recognize the truth. A good story tells us something we weren't expecting, but only up to a point. Stray into the realm beyond revealing what makes us feel comfortable and we don't like it so much. We want a proper story with a happy ending for the good and a satisfactory comeuppance for the bad. Have you noticed how we're always among the goodies, never one of the baddies? I said we accept stories revealing something unknown, that pretty much defines a good story, but I also said only up to a point. My point is that this point is the whole point. Look, you and I haven't met, I don't think, even though it sort of feels like we have by now. I don't know the limits of your particular storytelling comfort zone. I'm just guessing at the point beyond which the exotic becomes the uncomfortable. I'm taking a stab at the, the challenging, the inconvenient. Does not knowing for sure whether Gambatar even exists, let alone whether he really led anything approaching the extraordinary life I've been telling you over the past hour, bother you? Does the fact that you still don't know the height of the woman my friend met in centimetres, feet and inches, let alone her ranking among all female Mongolians, still feel to you like an unscratched itch? What if there were a story bigger, more important, more all-encompassing than every story we've ever told to each other put together? A story that's already 
destroying all that we find familiar, all that we value and aspire to all over the world, a story that will, must continue to get much worse, much quicker, unless we do something to change it right now. Not a story, then. A tragedy. A tragedy that with every passing day has fewer light moments, diminishing redeeming features, shrinking prospects of satisfactory resolution. A tragedy that's so real it's always going to be there when we wake up in the cold light of day tomorrow, a little worse than it was when we went to bed today. And what if it were in our power to change this story, this tragedy? But first, we need to sort out the truth from the lies. If we were all living in a world with that kind of story, how would you go about telling it? If you think you might be interested in that kind of story, look for anything to do with see-through news on any social media platform. You'll find we have many different ways of telling this story, from superhero drawing competitions to video games, podcasts, bleeding-edge AI projects, local newspaper review projects, pretty much anything we think will engage anyone for one moment. But all these stories are telling the same story, the most important story we've ever had to tell ourselves. Thank you for listening to the story of Ganbatar, the only deep-sea navigator in Mongolia. The series was written, narrated and produced by Sternwriter. Audio production by Samuel Wynn. If you enjoyed the story of Ganbatar, why not try series two of The Truth, Lies and Bedtime Stories? It's called Betrayed, a tale of Christmas spiritual pollution. The Truth, Lies and Bedtime Stories is a see-through news production. See-through news is a not-for-profit social media network with the goal of speeding up carbon drawdown by helping the inactive become active. For more, visit seethroughnews.org. Thank you for listening.